Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army, to part two and the conclusion of the Clint Lorance story. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, please stop and go listen to episode 11 before continuing. I am your host, Margot, and last week I gave everyone a teaser of what happened during Clint's 2012 deployment to Afghanistan. But things are about to get interesting. Just a recap, Army First Lieutenant Clint Lorance was a high-speed soldier. He enlisted in 2003, made it up through the enlisted ranks, deployed to Iraq, returned and got his college degree on the military dime, returning as an infantry officer. He deployed to Afghanistan in 2012, where he was originally a squadron liaison officer. But after 1st Platoon lost their leader due to injury, 1st Lieutenant Clint Lawrence was plucked from the headquarters to lead the troops in a highly kinetic area. From the beginning, he was making questionable calls pointing his gun at an innocent child at the front gate of the base, having one of his troops shoot warning shots from a tower even though there was no threat, and ignoring village elders who approached the gate to file complaints. On his third day leading the troops on a mission outside the wire, a motorcycle with three men were driving in the general direction of the platoon, which was on foot. Lawrence gave an order to take them out. A soldier shot twice and missed. The men on the motorcycle stopped, dismounted the motorcycle, and approached the Afghan National Army ANA at the front of the platoon on foot. The ANA waved them off and told them, go wait by your motorcycle. In the meantime, Clint gave an order to take them out again. Private First Class Skelton fired, killing two of the three men and injuring the other. The platoon did a half-hearted battle damage assessment, partly because of Clint. They found nothing threatening on the men, and Clint ordered the villagers to take the bodies. Clint then asked a soldier manning the radio to lie to headquarters. Clint then took the radio and made the false report himself. The platoon was soon in another engagement when two members of the platoon saw two fighting-aged men with radios looking up at the platoon, and the two soldiers eliminated the threat. Upon returning to base, one of the troop members disclosed the circumstances that led to the two dead men by the motorcycle. The captain ordered an investigation and two stories emerge, Clint's story and everyone else's story. And that is where we begin today. Now, without further delay, let's dig in. My sources for this episode are identical to those used in part one, but again, they are the 2017 Army Court of Criminal Appeals Court Opinion, the 2019 STARS documentary called Leavenworth, directed by Paul Pulowski, a 2017 Task and Purpose article by Adam Linham, various articles by the Army Times, Clint's personal letter to President Obama, the 2019 Press Secretary news release, FreeClint.com website, and the UAP website, and also a Washington Post article. So after everything happened in part one, Clint returned home with his unit, and he was charged with two counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. 
he hired a prominent attorney named Guy Womack, who would represent him at his court-martial. Clint's trial began on July 30th, 2013 at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, approximately a year after the incident. Nine of the soldiers who were present the day of the incident testified on behalf of the prosecution. However, Clint's defense attorney pointed out, hey, four of the nine witnesses who are testifying are testifying under a grant of immunity. And that just means that nothing that these people who are testifying under immunity say could lead to charges brought against them. The immunity, in essence, allows the witnesses to speak more freely without the fear of reprisal or the fear that they did something wrong that's going to get them in trouble. On August 1st, 2013, after a three-day court-martial, Clint was convicted of attempted murder, murder, wrongfully communicating a threat, reckless endangerment, soliciting a false statement, and obstructing justice. Immediately after the finding portion of the trial, the court-martial rolled onto the sentencing portion of the trial. And this is common practice in the military. And it's different from in the civilian sector where you would have sentencing months after the day the verdict is announced, whereas in the military, sentencing starts almost immediately. Clint and his family were crushed. They were crushed by the conviction and they were even more shocked and crushed by the 20-year sentence handed down by the jury. Clint's defense attorney was equally shocked, not necessarily by the verdict, but by the length of jail time. Although Clint's defense attorney normally doesn't guarantee an outcome, he was certain the sentence would include a reprimand and maybe a dismissal from the army. But 20 years in the brig? That was rough. But wait, remember, as we learned in episode one of Military Murder, a sentence handed down by a court-martial back in 2013 wasn't final until signed off by the commanding general who ordered the trial to begin with. So Clint's defense team worked diligently to prepare a clemency package for the general to review before making any final decision on the verdict and the sentence. And the clemency letter is 10 pages long, so I can't get into the entire thing today. But part of his qualms with how the court-martial was improper was the fact that evidence of the second engagement after the alleged killings was not allowed into evidence. Additionally, the army could have conducted biometrics on the dead bodies, but they chose not to. So this was potentially exonerating information for Clint, and the jury didn't even have a chance to hear about it. Just because the three men on the motorcycle didn't have weapons on them didn't mean they weren't part of a bigger scheme in the insurgent mafia. At least that's what the attorney thought. And Mayer argued, Mayer's a defense attorney, he argued it was possible that the third man who got away and wasn't captured until, you know, later, he could have been the one holding the damning evidence. But he got away and he could have had an opportunity to dispose of the evidence. Well, Major General Richard Clark was responsible for reviewing the entire court-martial record and deciding whether he should grant any clemency in this case. After reviewing everything, he reduced Clint's 20-year sentence to 19 years, and he affirmed the conviction and the sentence. So that means he just erased one year of the conviction. Meanwhile, Clint was in jail writing to everyone and their mother that would listen. Well, not just anyone, though. He was writing to politicians. And on December 10th, 2016, Clint wrote a personal letter to President Barack Obama. And I'll read a portion of it right now, but I'm going to skip around. So if you want to read the entire letter, please go to my blog post on this episode. 
It reads, quote, Mr. President, the meaning of freedom has changed for me over the past several years. As a soldier, freedom was an ideal that we internalized and swore to preserve. As a soldier in prison, freedom is about something much different. It is about finding a new place in society. Upon release from prison, I will retake my law school admission test and apply to law school. In the classroom, I'll use my first-hand experience to keep conversations in perspective. Mr. President, I will become an attorney who steps outside the status quo and makes bold moves towards unity and peace. As my commander-in-chief, I make this promise to you today. I will spend every day of my life devoted to peace and unity in America, and I will always fight for those who cannot fight for themselves, end quote. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy. And it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. So the defense team prepared for their appeal to the Army Court of Criminal Appeals, ACA. The defense appealed for six reasons, but after ACA reviewed the file, they found that the alleged errors were not enough to warrant relief. In the appeal, the defense really harped on the fact that biometrics obtained after the fact from the three men on the motorcycle pointed to at least two of the three men being biometrically linked to insurgent activity. Now, people may be wondering, what exactly is biometrics anyway, at least as it relates to insurgents? Well, according to a New York Times article written by Tom Shanker, biometrics is the collection of iris scans, that means scanning your eyeballs, fingerprints, and facial images used to identify an individual. The article I read was written in 2011, and Shanker said that, quote, American military and local authorities have been engaged in an ambitious effort to record biometric identifying information on a remarkable number of people in Afghanistan and Iraq, particularly men of fighting age, end quote. 
In Afghanistan, all detainees, prisoners, and local residents applying for a government job must submit to the scan. The information from these scans are combined with fingerprints taken from IEDs, which are improvised explosive devices, and they can help, and, and this identification can then help identify bomb makers and people involved in the insurgency movement. Now, that was a quick 30-second explanation of biometrics, but it is much more complex than this, but you get the gist for purposes of this story. All right, as I stated earlier, two of the three men that Clint ordered killed had been biometrically linked to the insurgency. The village elder who was killed knew an insurgent. The other man on the motorcycle who was killed was linked to an IED that killed an American weeks earlier. And the guy that got away, he was actually linked to an IED after the death of his friends on the motorcycle. So the defense argued that the government had an obligation to test for these biometrics. And also, once this evidence was handed over, it should have been allowed at trial and they were never given that opportunity because they didn't have this biometric evidence before trial. Clint's second claim was that his defense attorney was a bag of rocks. So his defense attorney at trial. So Clint had two attorneys. He had the defense attorney that represented him at the first trial. And then he had his appellate defense attorney. So in his appeal, he's arguing my first attorney at trial was a bag of rocks and he didn't do a good job defending me. And this claim is also known as an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. The court's test for figuring out if an attorney um, was ineffective is reasonableness. Would a reasonable attorney have acted similarly or objected to a specific thing in court? And not only that, but if you did have a better attorney, would the end result have been different? And the appellate court found his trial defense team did just fine. With regards to the first claim, the court was not sympathetic to the defense not having the biometric evidence before. Because even if the defense had that information at trial, it would have been irrelevant and not allowed anyway. Okay, so please stick with me. The court further goes on to say, even if Clint would have known that these men were insurgents, the men on the motorcycle were not taking any hostile actions towards the patrol. Here's a morbid analogy for my true crime army, okay? Let's say you have a neighbor who killed three of his coworkers and people saw him do it. And so there isn't the possibility of a mistaken identity in my fake scenario. Your neighbor is filthy rich and somehow he manages to make bail. The neighborhood is on edge. You see him in the street and he crosses onto your side of the road and walks towards you. Maybe he makes eye contact with you, but besides that, nothing. There is no threat. But as he continues to approach you, you take out your concealed carry weapon and you put a bullet in his head. Is this self-defense? Probably not. Yes, I know, who cares? He was a killer, right? Wrong. Well, according to the law, that is. It's wrong. We are not a society who takes justice into our own hands, and that's why we have the court system. But anyway, in my analogy, the fact that the person that you killed was a murderer would not be allowed in as evidence at your murder trial. Why not? Because the fact that he was a murderer is irrelevant. I mean, maybe it could mitigate the sentence to show kind of like your state of mind, but it is irrelevant to your innocence or guilt. I mean, you killed a man who did nothing to you. I know anybody who's a legal analyst is going to maybe say that my analogy is wrong or my analogy, whatever. But you kind of get the picture of what I'm trying to say. 
On June 27, 2017, after considering Clint's appeal, the Army denied his appeal in full. Now, I need to talk about another war criminal real quick in order to put Clint's story in perspective. A few months before Clint's incident, on March 11, 2012, 39-year-old Robert Bales entered a village in Kandahar and unleashed hell on a group of innocent women, children, and men. In the shooting, Bales killed 16 people, including nine kids. And this massacre was only 10 miles from where Clint was stationed in Afghanistan. And the Kandahar massacre, as it is known today, was only four months before Clint's engagement with the motorcycle. Clint has made it known he believes he was the Army's scapegoat after Bales committed his horrific crime. Now, Clint's defense team next appealed to the highest military court, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, CAF, which is made up of civilian members. But the petition was denied on December 17, 2017. Of the men in the platoon on that frightful day in Afghanistan who spoke to stars, they were torn by this case. Many of them wanted careers in the military only to get out after witnessing a tragedy in Afghanistan and then being dragged through the mud while participating in a court-martial. One of them became an alcoholic when he got out of the military. Another one of them attempted suicide because the entire ordeal was stressful. And yet another soldier still can't talk to his wife about what happened in Afghanistan. And in essence, these gentlemen, they live in their own form of purgatory. They may not be in jail, but it seems like they are in jail in their own heads. Clint discussed all of the support he got while in jail, not only from his tight-knit family, but from veterans all around the world. He said he received a letter from a Vietnam vet who could not believe Clint was in jail over shooting a bad guy. In fact, this Vietnam vet says, if the military had been following whatever rules they're following now during Vietnam, he opined that they'd, meaning soldiers, would all be in jail right now. Yikes. Command Sergeant Major Dan Gustafsson was the Command Sergeant Major in Afghanistan with Clint, and he chose to speak in the STARS documentary. But it should be noted he is now retired. Gustafsson spoke out against the Army. He believed that if Lieutenant Latino, who was the original platoon commander who had gotten hurt, had done the same exact thing as Clint, Lieutenant Latino would not have been court-martialed. Gustafsson also thought that Captain Swanson should have, one, been out there with Clint the first few days showing him the ropes, and two, should have been removed from command after Clint's ordeal. And Gustafsson goes on to say and give his opinion as to why Swanson wasn't fired. He says because Swanson was good friends with the Colonel Commander and there appeared to be a good old boy system. During the documentary, Clint made a few admissions. He admitted that a critical mistake he made was trying to mislead Captain Swanson. So right off the bat, he says, yep, I made a mistake by lying. And in my personal opinion, when Clint was talking about this, he gets really kind of squirmy on camera, but I'll let you know, I'll let you guys go and watch the Stars documentary. Clint says that after the shooting of the guys on the motorcycle, he didn't realize that anything was wrong until he saw a group of women and children huddled together pointing at the men by the motorcycle. He admitted that this was when he panicked a little bit inside. 
McGinnis added that Clint told the kids to get out of there and he began to count to 10. And if they were not gone by the end of his countdown, he was going to butt stroke them with his weapon or similar words. Private First Class Fitzgerald remembered Clint being really upset after the shooting and pointing his gun at villagers and shouting, quote, shut the up, end quote, or, quote, I'll kill you too, end quote. Clint remembered a couple of the NCOs being frustrated at this point. Clearly, the stress of the situation got to everyone. Back at the base, McGinnis recalled sitting alone and Clint, you know, beep-bopping along and asking him something like, quote, all right, Mike, so how are we going to spin this, end quote. And Mike was in shock, like, what? Who are you, dude? In the documentary, Clint made light of Skelton ratting him out. Clint actually said, quote, in prison, we call that a snitch, end quote. But then he goes on to say he understood that Skelton felt like he had an ethical obligation to report it. Although Clint does believe, but for Skelton, everyone else would have kept their mouth shut. In the fall of 2019, Clint was in the middle of filing a writ of habeas corpus with the Supreme Court. But before that could occur, he told Fox and Friends in a video that I will share on my sources page that on Friday, November 15th, 2019, Clint was in his jail cell and the guards came in to inform him he had a call. The prison staff came to get me. Uh, I was laying on my bunk and they came in there to get me and uh, they said, hey, you got a phone call. Uh, and I, I'm like, OK, uh, who's calling me? You know, that's not normal. And uh, so they take me to this little uh, legal office and uh, we're in this little this little back room, pretty much. And they have a, uh, a, a phone like a conference phone on the table. And uh, some colonel comes on from the Pentagon and says, this is Colonel so-and-so stand by for uh, defense officials. And uh, so I'm like, oh, crap, who's calling, you know? <laughs> and uh, so she, she wanted to verify my identity and everything. And so then some really nice lady comes on, and uh, she's from the White House. And she says, uh, uh, ask me if, you know, I'm Clint Lawrence. And I'm like, yes, ma'am. And she's like, stand by for the president. And <laughs> I'm like, uh, OK. And so then all of a sudden, the president comes on, and uh, he, uh, he says hello. And he introduces everybody in the room, um, and Vice President Pence was there as well. Uh, he says hello. And President Trump uh, then told me that he was about to sign a full pardon uh, and an expungement of the record. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he kind of gave me an insight into his personality a little bit. Um, you know, I've, I've seen him on TV, you know, and Twitter and stuff, but... Um, you know, talking to them in real time, uh, it, it really gives you the opportunity to see what kind of person he is, what kind of leader he is. Um, and, you know, I'm just, I'm just so impressed with uh, the vice president and the president. I'm, and, I, you know, I, I can't say it enough. I just told my hometown this last, uh, this last weekend, they threw a big, huge parade and there was like a police escort and everything else. And uh, so I, I can't say enough. You know, I'm just, I'm so, you know, happy to be an American. I mean, I'm just so glad that we're part of this, you know, amazing country and it's got such great, you know, impassioned, um, you know, leadership. As stated in the executive grant, Clint A. Lawrence was given a full and unconditional pardon. So what exactly is a pardon? According to the Department of Justice pardon information page, 
A presidential pardon is ordinarily a sign of forgiveness and is granted in recognition of the applicant's acceptance of responsibility for the crime and established good conduct for a significant period of time after conviction or release from confinement. A pardon is not a sign of vindication and does not connote or establish innocence. Pardon of a military offense will not change the character of military discharge. An upgrade may only be accomplished by the appropriate military authorities. So even though Clint was pardoned by the president, his dismissal from the army is still valid. Unless, of course, he appeals to the secretary of the army and the secretary of the army, you know, grants him clemency. While a presidential pardon will restore various rights lost as a result of the pardoned offense and should lessen to some extent the stigma arising from the conviction, the pardon doesn't erase or expunge the, convic- the record of the conviction. Therefore, even though you're granted a pardon, you must still disclose your conviction on any form where such information is required. Although you can, of course, always say, yes, I was convicted, but I did receive a presidential pardon, which I think, you know, is kind of a big deal that you can say that. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. The statement from the press secretary is lengthy, but I want to touch on a few things that I found interesting. It says, quote, under difficult circumstances and prioritizing the lives of American troops, Lawrence ordered his men to engage. Lawrence has served more than six years of a 19-year sentence. Many Americans have sought executive clemency for Lawrence, including 124,000 people who have signed a petition to the White House. The president, as commander-in-chief, is ultimately responsible for ensuring that the law is enforced and, when appropriate, that clemency is granted, end quote. After Clint spoke to the president, Clint was seen later that day leaving the disciplinary barracks, and it's unclear if he left the prison with his army service uniform on, but I know 100% that when he arrived at the hotel to meet his family, he was wearing his military service uniform. I not only saw it in a video, but I can imagine the overwhelming joy of having your child back home after being condemned to almost 20 years in jail. Within days of being home, Clint's hometown threw a parade in his honor where he had his very own security detail. 
And I recommend that everyone go watch the Leavenworth documentary. I thought it was really good. I think it did a, a pretty decent job with showing both sides. Now, the documentary did come out before the grant of the before the pardon. So it, it kind of takes you up to it. And then at the end, it tells you what happens with the pardon. But I think it's a pretty fascinating documentary. But as my usual curious self, I had a ton of questions after the documentary. Like first, how in the heck did Clint's attorney get permission to bring in a filming device or a recording crew into a maximum security prison? Listen, I am not an expert, but something to me kind of seemed a little off. By the way, I never mentioned this earlier, but attorney John Mayer looks like Ricky Gervais. And all I kept thinking was, I wonder if Ricky Gervais will play John Mayer in what I can only imagine will be becoming, which is a movie about Clint Lawrence. But anyway, go go watch the documentary and you'll see. Anyway, a few things of note. The documentary spent an inordinate amount of time talking about Clint's sexuality. Something that I never knew and I don't think is important for anything besides politics is the fact that Clint Lawrence is gay. Clint discusses growing up secretly gay in a devout Christian household. He escaped the hell of living an internally, quote, sinful life, end quote. And then he flocked to the army in order to escape his internal struggle. But when Lawrence entered active duty, I mean, the military was under the don't ask, don't tell policy put in place by President Clinton in 94. So in essence, Clint escaped one hell to go into another hell where he could never be his true self. At some point, Clint comes out to his mother and she doesn't accept it. She doesn't accept that he's gay. In fact, even in the documentary, Clint's mother talks about the power of change and she will never accept her son as gay. And I believe she said something like that, um, like she hopes that he changes one day. So fair warning, if you go and watch the documentary, there was something on there about the American flag. So let me just say this. Clint's family seems like a lovely all-American family. And they flew the American flag proudly in their front yard. But after Clint was convicted at a court-martial, his father admitted on the documentary that he went home and he wrecked the American flag. And in its place, he put up a Confederate flag. Of the American flag, he said, he might put the flag back up one day, but it wouldn't be until his son was home. So I wonder if he's put it up now. I don't know. So there you have it. You have all been warned about the documentary. Don't say I didn't tell you. It spends uh, an inordinate amount of time talking about Clint's sexuality and a lot about his family background. Uh, But it also does a good job with bringing in the guys who witnessed everything that happened in Afghanistan. But I still think, you know, I I still think it did a good job with presenting both sides. So Clint's closing statement in the Stars documentary is, quote, The Army just hand-delivered me my mission for the rest of my life. I'm going to fix it, end quote. And what he's talking about is he's going to fix the military justice system. According to the Washington Post, Clint's case is remarkable because he is only the second Army officer charged with murder in a battlefield death during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. All right, everyone, did I stay neutral? I know I'm super opinionated, but, you know, there were some things along the way that it was hard for me not to have an opinion or an idea about unless I am brain dead and I am not. I did want to present both sides of the case. So what do you guys think? Is Clint Lawrence a killer or is he a hero? Let me know if you want to continue the conversation on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast or on Facebook at Military True Crime. 
True Crime Army, thanks for sticking with me. I promise I'm going back to true crimes and not war crimes. But that story gives us a lot to think about, especially to those who have served out in the field in combat with the stress of death just looming at every turn. Again, this is a one-woman show, guys, created and produced by me, Margot, and all of the music was created by Tyops. To find a list of all of the sources I pieced together to bring you this case, I encourage everyone to go to www.militarymurderpodcast.com to check out the links. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Shh, let's work another podcast.